Sorry, we're, um, we're just all chatting up here, so we're running a couple minutes behind, but welcome to CSIS. I'm Johanna Nesseth. I'm uh, Senior Vice President for Strategic Planning here, and I head up our work on food security. And I'm really delighted to have you all here and delighted to talk with Roger Thoreau and Stephanie Hansen. You probably, I think this group has quite a bit of familiarity with uh, both of these folks and the work that they've done, but I'll give some quick introductory comments and then what we'd like to do is have sort of a dialogue today and then open up to questions from, um, from all of you. And we are on the record and we're recording this just uh, so you know. Um, Roger's recently written a book called The Last Hunger Season. We've got some books available in the back if you'd like to pick one up. Um, but what he did was he spent a year through a grant from the Gates Foundation and an affiliation with the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. He, uh, he spent a year going back and forth to Kenya to um, spend time in a community of smallholder farmers. And the farmers uh, were all part of the One Acre Funds program. And Stephanie Hansen is here from the One Acre Fund um, to talk a little bit about what their programs do and what the farmers are up to that uh, Roger was able to talk with. Um, this is especially, I think, relevant both to me personally, but also to our policy conversation in Washington. Um, I had a chance, along with Kristen Wedding and Richard Downey from our Africa team, to spend some time in Kenya this uh, in August and to visit some of the One Acre Fund farmers. And it was a really striking uh, experience for us because the reason for our trip was really to, to conduct a number of interviews about ag technology, to meet with the government, to talk about um, some of the policies and procedures that were in place, especially around biotechnology. And what was so striking was that there clearly have been a lot of resources. There have been a lot of there's been a lot of time and effort involved in developing sort of governmental structures for managing some of this high-level ag technology. But once we really um, went to talk with farmers, we found first of all that there's not you know the product pipeline for some of the new new technologies is actually not that strong first of all, but much more importantly, that the farmers who we actually spend our time talking about in Washington and thinking about in terms of achieving uh, better development, achieving reduced poverty, helping people just lead better lives, uh, it, it, was, it was pretty striking that I think a lot of times we actually don't really talk about those people, what their lives are, and refocus our efforts and our attention to the people we most really want to talk about and to serve and to assist. So we hope to just start to shift the conversation to talk more directly about smallholder farmers and some of the people who are engaged in these activities. And um, since Roger has spent a great deal of time do, um, talking with them over the past year or so, and Stephanie spends a great deal of time, uh, a, couple, about a couple months in Kenya, a couple months back in, in New York, um, just have them bring to life some of the people who are engaging in ag development and uh, just share your story. So welcome to both of you. I want to um, start with Roger and just ask you to talk about the farmers that you met and that you wrote about in your book. Um, these are farmers working with One Acre Fund and you chronicled the struggles and the successes and um, really all together you laid out a message of hope and a promise. So I'd like you to just talk a little bit about what you saw and, and what you heard. Sure, absolutely. And, and thanks for uh Thanks for having this uh, opportunity, and thanks everybody for, for coming, and particularly this opportunity to talk about the smallholder mm -hmm. farmers. Is, you're absolutely right, they're so often lost in the, the, the conversation, or we assume mm -hmm. uh, here's what their lives are like, and uh, um, you know, here's, what they, here's what they need, but when you, when you talk to them, you kind of find a different set of circumstances. I think that was one of the fascinating things for me, and I learned an awful lot 
about this. Despite that I had, had been as a reporter with the Wall Street Journal, spending a lot of time in Africa and, and reporting uh, there and elsewhere in the developing world. And one thing that I found particularly fascinating uh, about these farmers, I think it's really uh, important then to, to kind of understand this and how they make their decisions and, and, and how people in such extreme poverty and hunger and going through this, this, this period of, of profound and supreme deprivation uh, known as, as, as the hunger season, which is the period or the time of year between when the crops from uh, the previous harvest run out, either because they've consumed them as a family or they've had to sell some of the crops to raise money for school fees or uh, uh, medical uh, care or whatever other reasons, and the time of the year when the next harvest comes in. And that can be a period of maybe one or two months, or it can go on for nine or ten months, as it did for one of the farmers. And it's this period of, of kind of rationing food, uh, and then a time when the, when, when the meals uh, uh, dwindle from three a day to two to one to some days, maybe just having a weak cup of tea in the morning or a very meager cup of porridge, and that's it for the kids to go off to school, for the parents to go out into the fields and do all this work on such little uh, uh, nutrition and such little uh, energy. But what I, I found in terms of their, of their decision making, that at best these farmers, they live in, a, they live in an, an, in an either-or world. But in most cases, the majority of cases, they live in, 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 in an either-nor world. And kind of what that means is they're not growing enough food to feed their family throughout the year. So from their harvest, they can neither feed their family throughout the year, nor do they have any kind of surplus to do any of these other things, to, to basically be able to pay the school fees for their children to go to school, to afford the malaria medication, uh, to afford uh, uh, to diversify their crop, to, to uh, uh, diversify the nutrition uh, of the family, to perhaps buy another milk cow uh, or some chickens to diversify and increase their income. So it's kind of a neither nor, and at the best it would be an either or that we have enough food that we're producing to feed our family through the year, or to send one of our children to high school and to pay the high school tuition fees. And boy, that, that education is really, is really important. And so when you're caught up in that situation, it's, it's really tough and, and, and heart-wrenching uh, decisions that they have to make, that if they have, have a harvest, and even through one acre, if they, if they increase their harvest, they double or triple their harvest, and they have a surplus, for the first time, they might have enough food to conquer the hunger season, to feed their family throughout the year. But there's these education goals. There's education things that come up. It's a, it's a, it's a malaria and, and endemic reason, or area. So throughout the book, there, there's kind of constant bouts with, with malaria. There's other uh, health uh, concerns that they have. Uh, uh, leaky roofs uh, that would need to be repaired, or better just to buy a metal roof instead of a thatched roof. And so you find them selling some of their food in order to do that, and we might think, and kind of my thinking was, well, now you've got enough food to feed your family throughout the year. Um, you know, why would you sell some of that for these for these other purposes? But as they explain them uh, to me, and as we try to then explain in the book, there's a, there's there's rationale and there's logic for why they're doing that. There's other goals that they have. The education goal, extremely extremely powerful. So what you what you find. And all the, the efforts of, say, the One Acre Fund and, 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 and Feed the Future and everything that the Gates Foundation is doing in this, this realm, what, what, what corporate CEOs, what NGOs, what faith-based organizations, all their efforts kind of on the agriculture development front, these smallholder farmers 
are at the very essence and core of them. And what it all boils down to, and I was, I was thinking of this at the Chicago Council Symposium uh, last year in May, where, where uh, President Obama spoke, uh, and Hillary Clinton spoke, and, and uh, uh, Bono spoke, and there were so many corporate leaders there. So at that symposium, you had the powerful in the White House, you had the, you had the rich CEOs in corporate, Ameri and corporate, not only America, but, but the international, multinational world, and you had the famous with Bono. And all their efforts boiled down to bringing into the lives of these farmers three little letters, A and D, and and. To put this and into their lives, so not that they're living neither nor lives, or either or lives, but they're leading and lives. I can now grow enough to feed my family and pay the tuition to send my kids to school. I can grow enough food to feed my family throughout the year and buy all the health care and medication uh, that I need. I can grow enough food to feed my family throughout the year and buy an additional dairy cow to diversify my crops in the second place. To build a new house that won't leak and that the, rain, that the walls won't collapse during, the, during the, the, the rainy season. And so kind of just, just, just the essence of their, of their existence and putting this, 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 this common conjunction, this and, into their lives and ending this horrible oxymoron of, of hungry farmers and that, that, that shouldn't, shouldn't exist. And so to kind of change their lives from and their farming from merely farming to live, which is subsistence farming, to farming to make a living. And there's just a huge gap between those, be, 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 between those two, two, two kind of sets of, 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 uh, of farming. And so I think kind of their whole decision-making uh, process and the book revolves around uh, decisions that they make early in the year, what to do with their harvest, as the school fees come due, as medical burdens bear on them, the decisions that they make and how that then kind of influences the rest of the year as they descend into the hunger season and come out of the season and hopefully through their work with the One Acre Fund, being able to finally conquer the hunger season year after uh, year. After year. So just the power of, of, of this little word, and, and to put that and into their lives uh, is, is really quite profound. And, and I think we've got a, an audience here where probably a number of people have probably visited villages or, or homes like the ones that you visited. I wonder if you could give us a little bit of a baseline, uh, because you describe this well in the book. And I would tell you all, it's probably the best book I've read on that addresses this question of ag development and food security. But tell us about the baseline. You walk into a house. It's a small house. If you could tell us a little bit about the house and the, the, basically the cash in the house. The cash is four bags of, of corn. It's six bags. But talk about what the baseline was that you saw. And then I think we want to talk, Stephanie, about what One Acre Fund has done and some of the, the steps toward um, improving that baseline. Yeah, so say we take one of the farmers, uh, Tsipora Bacchetti, and then, so I'll describe that, that yeah. baseline situation, and then, and then with Stephanie, the work that One Acre does, and then we'll see what happens to her kind of through the, through the course of the year. So she was the poorest uh, of the farmers. And when I first met her, uh, she was telling me that. And so it was, it was already in, 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 in early January at the base training sessions of the One Acre Fund where all the farmers get together and there's kind of the, 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 the agricultural extension training, how to use the, 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 the whole principle of getting credit and repaying the credit, and just the essence of what the One Acre Fund uh, is about. Already in February, or already in January, her hunger season had already begun. It had started in November the previous year. The harvest was just in, in what, August, September or so. And so when I said, 
she's the farmer that their hunger, her hunger season basically went on for 10 and stretched on for, for, for nine or 10 months. So in November already, she had only had the resources uh, to plant a quarter of an acre. She had a really nice acre uh, uh, kind of right, right next to her, 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 her little house as part of her property. Really nice, just one tree in the middle. Uh, uh, I think it's a, a, a flame tree, so when it's, when it's blooming, it's, it, it's gorgeous with the red uh, blossoms and things. Uh, but a really nice thing, but she only had the resources to plant with, with, with seeds and the, the, the judicious use of fertilizer they have, just to plant a quarter of an acre. Her harvest was just two bags, two 90 kilogram bags of, of maize, of corn. And so by October, November, that was already starting to run out. Her father then died in November uh, of, of 2010. And you know, their tradition is in custom that all the members of the family then will kind of combine their resources for the, for the funeral and, and, and kind of the food and the feast that they have along with that. At that stage, all she had left was uh, uh, 30 kilograms of maize that was left from, from her two 90 kilogram bags. And so that she contributed to the, to the funeral. So at the end of November, she had nothing uh, left of, of their own produce. And so that hunger season then, they were in that position of stretching then all the way to the following harvest of, uh, of, of July, August or so when that was coming in. Uh, the house was uh, uh, a house made of mud and sticks. It was the smallest of the houses of the four of the four farmers, you'd walk in through the front door, which is kind of a, a wooden door that's hanging askew. Uh, it was open most of the time, so the chickens are kind of scampering uh, uh, back and forth. Uh, the floor is, is, is kind of an uneven floor that's a, 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 and made of a mixture of, of mud and, and cow dung. Um, the rooms, uh, just three rooms in her house, kind of a sitting room, then a, a, a bedroom with only one bed in, but not like a bed that we would think of, just kind of a, a very basic bed with a wooden structure, just like a blanket that was over it. And so there's hardly anything that they were sleeping on. And there was another room that was their, their kitchen. So a lot of the farmers, their kitchen will be a separate room. Their room was part of the house. And so when they're cooking with wood, there was just smoke kind of constantly that was, that was in their living uh, quarters as opposed to a separate structure. Um, the furniture was all kind of unadorned wood. So you're sitting on a chair and it's just kind of wood slats, there was no, no uh, 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 blankets or, or anything uh, covering it. And the roof was a thatched roof, um, which is an indication that they're kind of on the lowest level because they never had any kind of money that they had accumulated for uh, a metal roof. The roof was leaking in a couple of places and particularly in the, in the bedroom, making things you know, very, uh, uh, very uncomfortable. Uh, she has four children. Uh, the youngest, David, uh, was two years old as the book starts. Uh, he was malnourished with the, the uh, kind of obvious manifestations of it with the distended uh, belly, a, a cough that was constant throughout the, throughout the year. It was like a, uh, a bell on a cat. You, could always, you always knew where David was because you could hear his cough when he was out, out, in, the, out, out, out in the field somewhere or maybe in the rocks behind. Uh, his two sisters were, were very thin, uh, stick figures almost. Uh, the oldest boy, uh, you know, kind of in better shape, and, and, and he was in, in, in school, 10 years old, so uh, he would kind of come and go uh, during the day. But so that's kind of the baseline structure that they had. 2011, they joined the One Acre Fund. Through the market bundle that's provided, she's able to plant one acre. 
And so that's kind of as I'm, as I'm joining her in the story uh, at that stage. And so as Stephanie kind of explains a little bit, then we'll find out what, uh, what happened to Sapporo. Well, talk, talk to us some about the One Acre Fund, because in some ways what you're doing is providing some extension services, but also better seeds, some fertilizer, and then a lot of know-how about how to actually plant, uh, plant more effectively and harvest more effectively with, in a group setting. So can you talk about some of the approaches and some of the details that may seem a little bit um, detailed, but very, very, you know, so very important to the success of the program? Sure, and I think Zabora is a good person to start with because in many ways she is indicative of the typical one acre fund client. Um, just to clarify, there are four farmers that are, um, that are followed over the course of the year in the book, and three of them are farmers who have been members of One Acre Fund the previous year, so they're coming back for their second year. And Zabora is the one farmer of the four who has not taken a loan with One Acre Fund before, so I would say she is our typical target client. Uh, one Acre Fund works on the principle that there are two innovations that you really need to reach these poorest smallholder farmers effectively. The first is that you need a bundled approach. So you can't just do one thing. You can't just take seed and fertilizer and give it to that farmer and expect that they're going to be successful, get a really big harvest, and make a lot of money. And you also can't just go give that farmer a cash loan, expect that they'll be able to find seed and fertilizer somewhere, use it correctly, and then get a great harvest and make a lot of money. It's important to act at every part of the value chain for that small farmer. And that's what One Acre Fund does. So we start with the farm inputs. The first part of our operating model is distribution of seed and fertilizer. We buy seed and fertilizer in bulk, and we take it out to the village level to distribute it to our clients. So if you were a farmer, you would only have to walk about a mile or a mile and a half to pick up that seed and fertilizer. Incredibly easy. You don't have to worry about transportation, bad roads. You just walk. The second part of the model is financing. No one has cash to buy seed and fertilizer when it's time for planting. Uh, Zabora, in, in particular, is an example of that. She was, in fact, already out of food when it was time to plant. So we offer that seed and fertilizer as an in-kind loan. We don't do cash lending. We do lending in the form of those farm inputs. Our loan term is tailored to the agriculture growing season, so we disperse before planting and farmers repay in cash over the course of that agriculture season with final repayment a few weeks after harvest. And we really tailor this, so we actually don't set that final repayment date until the rains start, farmers plant, and we know when they're going to harvest. And it even gets tailored at the district level. So in Kenya this year, I think we had about six different repayment deadlines depending on which district you were living in. The third part of the model is education and training. So you've got your inputs, you didn't have to pay cash for them, but now you need to know how to use them. Zabora, I don't think, had used fertilizer before. No. So uh, she actually didn't know how to use fertilizer correctly. Well, fertilizer is expensive. If you buy it and use it incorrectly, you actually lower your yield, reducing your return on investment, but increasing your cost. So we have a network now in Kenya, Rwanda, and Burundi of about 800 full-time salaried staff who provide extension services to our farmers. 
they provide those agriculture trainings in the fields where our farmers are actually working. So they don't have an office. Their office is the village where they're working. They walk around that village six days a week delivering training and education sessions to our clients. And they do that in farmer groups. So generally, they'll offer a training to 30 to 40 farmers. They'll do one in the morning, one in the afternoon. Um, and before each training starts, they walk around to people's homes and remind them, hey, we're having the training at 10 o'clock this morning, or we're having the training at 2 o'clock this afternoon. And we found that this is a really effective way uh, for people to um, get new information and also for our staff to provide immediate feedback to farmers on whether or not they're enacting that technique correctly in the field. Uh, the fourth part of the model is market facilitation. So after you get that great harvest and you have a surplus, how do you keep that surplus so that you can sell it when the market price is high and make a good profit? We teach farmers how to store their surplus in home safely so that it doesn't rot or get infested by pests. And then we offer training on how to come together as a small farmer group in your community and negotiate with local traders. So that's a four-part service model. It's uh, proven very effective with our clients. Uh, we find about a 100% increase in farm income per planted acre. That's in one season. And anecdotally, um, and as, as you learn in Roger's book, farmers use that extra income for a lot of different things. It could be livestock, it could be improving the home, um, it could be secondary school fees, it could be diversification into a vegetable crop. I've seen all of those things um, generally in the first year. So is that, do I cover? No, that's perfect. <laughs> um, it, it, Roger actually describes in the book some of the training and some of the group processes. And this is something that struck us as really interesting and really important that, as you said, you have very frequent ongoing feedback. So you have to have yeah. almost, you know, almost an army of people out there talking to people, <laughs> um, which I think is actually one reason why you know, you're under pressure to scale up, because it's a great model. But you have to have an army of people who actually know how to work with farmers and collect debts. And I want to talk about that in a minute. But first, maybe let's just talk about a little bit of the context of some of the group meetings. Um, we, we got to go sit with a group for a while and ask them, so what, what do you need from farming? What are your challenges? Um, and one that we heard was this point that, well, we just don't have time or energy or inputs to run our whole acre. Or I have an acre and a half. I can only plant one acre because it's all I can manage. And this was surprising to me because I had just assumed that people were a land constraint, but it, it actually was more labor or input constraint. In the yeah. area where you were. In the area where I was I specifically. Yeah. That could be. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but we also heard that it's, re so it's really hard to work in group. And I first thought that that was because, oh, it's the different kinds of seeds or what it's just, it's complicated or you need more training. Um, but but it, what the farmers, ex and this is just anecdotal, but what the farmers explained to us was, look, when you work in group, you can't sort of scatter your seeds and hope for the best. You have to work together and you have to stretch your string. You have to plant in rows. It's more time consuming. It's harder work, but it yields better results. So I wanted you guys to talk, you know, and you described some scenes about some of the group meetings and just talk a little bit about what those were like, because there's just nothing I would ever think of at a, um, a county extension meeting in, say, rural Iowa, but love to hear about it. Yeah, I think it, 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 it's the working, there's a one acre, there's a one acre jingle uh, that they have that they'll sing at the beginning of the meetings and they'll sing when they're in the, the fields. And I think 
you know, one of the lines is we're, 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 we're strong farmers, and in another line, we, you know, we work together. And so the whole idea of, of, of working together, we work together to end our poverty, uh, is important. One, it's kind of more hands, particularly during the really busy times of, 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 and labor-intensive times during planting, uh, the weeding, uh, and, and, and the harvesting. So if you have more people kind of working on your farm, it's not, not, it's not like collectivized farming, so they're all on their individual plots, but they're neighbors, or, and, and they work in groups of, say, 8 to 12. And they're people that, that, that live in the, in, in, the, in the area, so they know each other uh, and their neighbors. Uh, but there is that kind of self-discipline then that goes, or group discipline that goes along with it that, okay, this is the training that we've had, and when we plant, we got to do it right. And so let's all get together. You got you the know, ladies cracking the whip. Exactly. To, 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 you know, to, to, to do it right. And there's one scene, so Leonida, she was out planting, and she's also a village elder, and somebody came by and wanted to talk to her about something and said, this is planting time. I don't have time to talk to you. If you want to tell me what your grievance is, take a hoe and bend down, and we'll talk while we're, while, while we're working the soil or we're putting the seeds in here. You know, and so that was her as a very strong woman talking to this man, you know, in the village, and he was kind of taken aback because, gee, who's she talking to me like this? But it was like, we've got work to do. And, and, and all her group was there, and so we're not going to slow down for whatever kind of problem that you're, you're coming to me um, with. But kind of during the, the, the training sessions, it's also that they'll still use, uh, and, and a very effective uh, way, I think, uh, to convey the messages of, of the farming, of, of just the agriculture uh, advice and the way that the, way that, uh, 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 the repayment of, 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 of credit works. And so they'll use a lot of like uh, role playing. And so the, the essence of, uh, you know, working uh, together that, you know, they, they would call up uh, two farmers, uh, a man and a woman, uh, up, to the, up to the front of, of, of where they're talking. A lot of times the meetings are held in, in churches, so it might be kind of the altar uh, up in front. And they moved away any of the religious trimmings, and, and, and instead there's, there, there's hoes and there's bags of seed, and there's these, these, these planting strings of twine that are up there uh, instead. And so they would have this, this man and woman farmer uh, that come up, and to the woman they give like one twig or one stick, and they say, break the stick, and they go, whoop, and they break it, and the woman breaks it. And so she's proud, oh, I broke the stick. And then they give to, to the man, they get a bundle of sticks kind of wrapped together in a twine and they say, you break this. And so he's trying to break it and bending it over his knee and he's getting red-faced and embarrassed because he's not able to, to break that. And there's much hilarity and people are laughing and they say, look, this is the difference. If we work together, we're strong. We're not easy to, we're not easy to, to break. If we're working individually, we get tired. We're like a twig. We can break easy. We might plan a little bit, and then we're tired, and we leave, and then, so what happens with the, with the planning? And so, you know, that was really effective. So I think in their minds, oh, okay, uh, we see that. And then there was the other time in terms of, you know, you really got to be disciplined in uh, weeding. And so they would have uh, 12 farmers voluntarily come up, 10 or 12, and they would be in two rows. The first row would, like, squat down, and then the second row would stand up, and they'd say, okay, you farmers in the back row, put your hands on the shoulders of the people, of the farmers in the front row that are squatting. You farmers in the front row, try to stand up. You farmers in the back row, hold them down. And so they would kind of try to stand up, and the farmers would behind them would kind of push them, would, 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 would hold them down. And again, much, much kind of hilarity, because everybody knows each other uh, at, at, at look at the scene on stage. And there the lesson is, the ones standing up, holding them down, they're the weeds. These are the corn sprouts that are trying to come up. And they'll be, they'll be held back if there's the weeds that are, that are you know, basically pressing them uh, back down. 
And in the way of, uh, of, of just explaining how the, uh, the credit works, it's fascinating. There, there was a, a bucket of uh, water that, say, Leonita uh, or somebody carried to the front of the, of the room, gave the bucket of water to Leonita, one of the farmers, and then they were told, okay, this is a gift to you. Here's an NGO or somebody, they give you this bucket of water, these farming inputs, uh, and then you use them. And so, and then Leonita went outside, opened, went to the side door, threw the bucket of water out into the grass. Then she came back in with, a with an empty bucket, and the extension agent said, okay, you got your gift and you use it, now what? Now there's nothing. And they said, here's how the credit system works. So another bucket of water came forward. They had a full bucket and an empty bucket, and there was a little cup, and they said, we're going to loan you the money through these inputs. You'll pay us back. And would dip the cup in and, and, and pour cup by cup by cup to transfer the water from this bucket to that bucket. And you can make, and so each scoop was like a payment of, of a dollar a week or something, what, what, whatever money they would have, until they paid it off, the bucket is full. Ah, now this bucket's full, so next year when we come, here's the full bucket of water scoop the water back, and here's the repayment for the next year. And so the water never leaves. So the input, so the credit is there. And to repay it through that, and even kind of standing in the back of the room or sitting with Leonid or one of the farmers and watching that, that whole system became really clear to me. And I said, oh, so that's how the microfinance system and everything works. So it was really simple. And then when I told Andrew Ewan about that, I said, who was the founder of One Acre, and he said, are they still using those examples? Because that, was, that were the early ones that had. And I said, yeah, and I think the, the field officer found that they were really uh, effective uh, in doing that, and then and then just the, the work of the of the planting string and one seed uh, per hole, and this is all common backyard gardening knowledge to us. But for them, it's 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 new. And if you think of, gee, how important were the extension agents in the United States in the agriculture transformation of the United States or any country in Europe or any country that that, that that's transformed that's had an agricultural transformation? That the technology is here. The knowledge then needs to go out to the farmers. What is the best way to take advantage of that technology? What are the best planting methods? So as Joanna said, or, or, or Stephanie, that when they used to plant, they would just scatter seeds. They would dig the furrows and scatter seeds. If a couple seeds landed together in a hole, that's okay. And actually, it's probably pretty good because their thinking was, well, at least one will grow. But we know they'll all start growing. And then they become competitors for the soil nutrients, for the sun, for the space, for the water. One seed per hole. That's a concept that is kind of intuitive to us, but for them, yeah, one seed per hole, but it's really time consuming and painstaking to do that when everything's manual labor, that you're bending over deeply to put the seed in the hole and make sure it's there, and then the fertilizer and then to cover it up and thing, and that takes a long time. And so to, be, to have the discipline of being able to do that and not to get lazy halfway through the field and say, ah, I'm tired, my back's killing me, I'm just going to scatter the seed. When all the, when all the farmers are there in the group, it's like, no, we're sticking to this system. We know it works. We're told it works. And so it's really a fascinating kind of group and social uh, and community dynamics. Uh, that's like, and that's also then how it spread that kind of from one farmer to the other. And farmers around the world, they're the same. Whether they're farmers in Iowa or they're farmers in, in, in Western Canada, you're watching your neighbors. You're watching the other farmers. I mean, that's why when you know, I, I'm, I'm from northern Illinois and I live in Chicago, now you drive through the, through, through, through the Midwest in the summertime, there's signs outside, or there's signs by the side of the road 
this seed is being grown here. So as people are driving around, and particularly on the main highways, oh, those soybeans look nice, that corn looks nice, that wheat, what kind of, what kind of variety is that? It's the same thing with these farmers, they're looking. Why is Francis's crop so good? What's Sephora doing? And that's how they, so this whole group dynamics is actually quite, uh, quite fascinating. And, and one acre has developed its own signs that they'll put in front of some fields, particularly along pathways that are, that are heavily uh, traveled, on the way to school, on the way to the market, so people are walking and they say, oh, one acre sign, wow, that's what they're doing. What's this organization about? And so that's kind of where this organic growth of the organization uh, comes from. And so at the end of every harvest, when you're signing up new members, there's kind of, they, they, they'll have a meeting under a tree on some farmer's, some farmer's house, and there's 40, 50, 60 people that show up who have seen what's going on and they want to be members because their, their, their hunger season was so bad the year before that we got to do something about this, so, so how do we join this organization? So the group dynamics are just are, are, are fascinating, really important and part of the, as part of the strategy. Do you want to add anything about the group dynamics? Maybe I'll just say that I think the, the group dynamic really kind of reinforces the I realized I forgot to tell you about the second innovation of our operating model, which is, which is the distribution component. Every piece of the model we're taking straight to the doorstep of the farmer. So the seed comes to the farmer. The credit happens in the field. You know, they repay their field officer at their own home. They don't have to travel really far to get to a bank. The training sessions happen on the land of the farmer or one of the farmers in their group. And the, the storage component is also happening at home. Um, but what reinforces the, the information that farmers are receiving um, is that group. And so farmers um, join One Acre Fund as part of a group, so they take their loan as a group, their individual loans, but guaranteed by the group. So if one member of the group is not repaying, the rest of the group cannot take future loans from One Acre Fund unless that farmer repays or the other group members cover that person's loan. So there's this very powerful, pure dynamic at work that's um, convincing people both you know, to repay their loan and to follow the, the new agriculture practices that they're learning. And I think we all know doing something new is, is not so easy. Um, we all make New Year's resolutions, and I mean, I never keep mine. So I think, like Roger says, the, the new methods that the farmers are learning, they're not easy, um, especially if you're used to taking a, taking a handful of seed from a bag and just throwing it and waiting to see what happens. It's a lot more work. So if a lot of people around you are also doing that work, it makes a big difference. Because it's, it's, it's a leap of faith, a lot of these new uh, uh, extension advice that they're getting. One seed per hole, what, what that doesn't work. Yeah, okay, my right. harvests aren't so good the way I am planning, but I'm one seed per hole? Kind of, what, a, what if that's the right? There's also a great kind of pride in the groups. And there's kind of like, you know, competitions that a field agent will have, and maybe he's in charge of 10 or 12 groups yeah. or something. And, and so it's, well, yeah, like and so it's kind of, it's kind of yeah. like, who's paying off first, uh, you know, kind of, of, of in, in terms of production. But, but one of the, the, the delightful things is that uh, they all, they, 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 all the groups, they, they give names uh, to their groups. And some of them are like delightfully aspirational. So it's, it's the, the happiness group, or the success group, or the peaceful group, or the, the group of God's mercy, or God's grace. And, 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 and the best one is why I, I, I Leonido, one of the farmers, and, and, and why I first met her, I said, 
she's a farmer that I, and, and her group that I really need to, to follow. I said, Leonita, what's the name of your group? Amua, she said. Just a Swahili word that I didn't know at the time. I said, well, what does Amua mean? Amua means to decide. What have you decided? We have decided, our group, we have decided to move from our misery, the misery of the hunger season, we've decided to move from our misery to Canaan. I said, the biblical Canaan. She says, that's it. I said, the land of milk and honey. She said, absolutely. So I figured, here's Leonita, her group of farmers. Their very name is this movement that I'm trying to hopefully convey in the book to have this kind of feeling of hope or optimism that things can happen, that agriculture development works, that these are successful programs. So here they are on kind of this, this modern day exodus. And when we go back to her, her little house, she opens up her Bible and she goes to the, to, 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 to the chapter and verse in Exodus where that is taken from. And so it's not an exodus from one place to another, but it's, it, it's the transformation of their land, of their quarter, half, half acre, one acre, one and a half, two acres, of that from, from, from this land of, of misery, not, even, not being able to, enough to, to grow enough to feed your family throughout the year, to this land of veritable milk and honey where they can diversify, where they do grow enough, where they grow enough to add this and into their, into their lives. And so it was just the name of her group that I said, wow, this kind of encapsulates everything that I want to, uh, or I'm hoping to uh, uh, convey uh, in the book. And so uh, hooray for the groups and their delightful names and the pride they take in their, their working together. Well, and farming is, is a pretty religious operation because you have to invest everything you got and just pray that it turns out. Um, and I think, Oh, the, one of the most striking parts of the book for me was this time when they were waiting for rain, because talk about prayer. Um, and, and I wanted to ask you to describe that a little bit, because um, One Acre Fund has rules about you may not plant until you have had enough rain, otherwise your crops aren't going to grow. And it, 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 as you read the book, you can see that it was killing people to not start planting yet. It was just, yeah. it was making them terrified. And I wanted you to describe that a little bit. And maybe, Stephanie, you can talk first, if, if you'd like, about sort of what's the rule? What do you ask people to sign up for? And then what, what was it like watching people wait for the rains? <laughs> well, if by rule you mean well, we give them seed and fertilizer and say, wait until in Kenya you've had three solid days of rain before you plant. And then we cross our fingers and say, please let the rain start quickly so that farmers are not sitting on that seed and fertilizer because the longer they sit and the rains aren't coming they say oh, let me just I've got it let me just plant and so what happens is all of our field officers are running around their villages frantically saying to people are you going to plant even though there hasn't been rain don't plant you know just sending out the message don't plant don't plant don't plant and it's this really anxiety inducing mm -hmm. time of mm -hmm. year for everyone I mean Every group meeting starts with a prayer for rain and ends with a prayer for rain. People start saying crazy things like, I saw a certain kind of butterfly this morning. It's definitely going to rain this afternoon. Or, you know, what, what are some of the other things? Oh, the, the clouds look a certain way, but only at this time of the day. And that means that in two days, it's going to rain. A lot of, you know, mystical kind of thinking at this time right. of year. But it's because... Um, most farmers in sub-Saharan Africa do not um, do not use irrigation technology, so it's all rain-fed agriculture, and you have to have that rain. Right. There was a there was a meeting, and all of a sudden, a dust devil picked up and started and started kind of dancing across a field, and then kind of went to the road and disappeared. And the guy, 
I was next to, he said, did you see that? And I said, I said, a dust devil. And he said, yeah. I said, what about it? And he says, the rains are near. <laughs> I said, okay, why? But it's a dust devil that was dancing across the field. Uh, and then they have, in addition to the prayer, there's kind of, uh, well, incantations that are, that are also uh, spiritual, where they're kind of trying to pull the rain down uh, uh, from the sky. From, and, 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 and so it's fascinating uh, to watch that. But 2011 was, was particularly <coughs> interesting and, 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 and tense, and the drama builds. And hopefully I capture that in the, in the book as we're all waiting for the, for the rain to come. Because here's this drought that's moving through uh, the Horn of Africa, through East Africa, marching through, through Kenya from the east to the west, uh, where these farmers are. In the wake of the drought comes hunger, comes food aid uh, that, that, that's coming into the country. Uh, and so these farmers, where they would usually get pretty good rains in, in western Kenya, the year before, in 2010, I think the rains had come at the end of February. The rains had come early. It had come early. And so Some they were, of our so trucks got stuck during input delivery. <laughs> and, so, and so they were, they were planting by the end of February, early March, after they had waited for the, for the three days. And so and that was convenient for them, so they didn't have the seeds for that long. In fact, the seeds were still being delivered during okay. the time of the rain. So here they had their seeds, and, 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 and one week goes by, two weeks go by, three weeks go by, the, the, the constant daily vigil, the first thing they would do every morning, they'd get out of the, as, as they emerged from their little houses, is, is, is look to the skies and look to the distance in the horizon. Any clouds, any, 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 any wind, they looked towards Mount Elgon on, on the Kenya-Uganda border from whence the rains would come. Any mist over there, any, anything going on around Mount Elgon that then might signal the rains are beginning. And day after day, it was, da, another beautiful day in Africa. Blue skies, hot. You know, they wanted a Seattle day. They wanted a London day or a slate gray Moscow day or something. Another beautiful day in Africa. So the tension built. And I'm kind of, you know, kind of also growing tense watching them because I always figure, gee, if the rain don't come, then I've got a different kind of book that I'd be writing. <laughs> it wouldn't be a book of kind of the progress of these farmers, and, and, and here's these interventions from One Acre Fund, and here's the difference that they make, and here's, here's, here's kind of the goal of Feed the Future and, and, and kind of agriculture development would be like, oh, gee, uh, the drought's coming, it's horrible, and here's kind of people sitting around, and the hunger season <laughs> persists. It would be a different kind of book, perhaps equally fascinating, but, but kind of different than what I was hoping to be able uh, to show. One day we're out there in the fields, and so the farmers, they would like start practicing their planting, as they had been told, just to kind of, like keep sharp. It's like right, the first team that qualifies for the World Series, and they're sitting around for seven days waiting for the other team to finish their series, and it's like, well, so they start playing games against themselves. And so these farmers, they would be out there, and they would be kind of, you know, practicing, and the field officer would come by and say, uh, okay, well, I don't know, the rains aren't coming, uh, but let's practice uh, and be ready. And so they'd be with the planting string and stuff. And then at one of them, there was a, one, of, one of the older farmers, not one, that I, not one of the four that I followed, but uh, she was in, 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 in she was in the Amua group. Uh, and she was the oldest, she was 72 uh, years old, Agnes Wechwela. And I figured, okay, so Agnes, geez, she's 72, she's already like you know, 20 years beyond the average life expectancy. Uh, but she had experienced so much, she was in tune with the climate and everything, she must have seen everything. So I said, Agnes, what if it doesn't rain? She said, oh, it'll rain. And she said it was such certainty that I was kind of taken aback. And I said, how can you be so certain? You know, there's kind of the drought moving around. Yes, I've heard that on the radio. It'll rain. The rains will come. How do you know? The rains will come because God knows where we live. God knows who we are. I figured, 
She has this bedrock faith. All the other farmers in Wamuwa were gathering around. What's Agnes saying? What's her opinion on the rain? And then so every kind of everybody relaxed, and I relaxed. Said, okay, they believe this will happen. God knows where they live. The rains will come. Sure enough, in a couple of days, the rains came, and boy, then they came. And they came for several, three days in a row. Boom, time to start planting. They planted, anxiety goes. And the reason they want to plant as, quick, as early as they can, because that shortens the hunger season. Because as long as the rains are delayed, boy, the, the, the harvest is delayed. And they're already in kind of starting the hunger, the hunger season. That conversation with Agnes became kind of a, 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 a touchstone of my reporting. And then what I wanted to show with the book and hopefully the message, and so this is great that we have, have this because it, it kind of helps with this message. God may know who these farmers are, but do we here, far away in the United States, rich world, do we know who they are? And then throughout the year became increasingly convinced we must know who these farmers are because for so long we've considered them as too remote, too poor, too insignificant. The private sector didn't care about them. The donor world, we didn't care about them. The World Bank said, don't care about them. Uh, and their country governments didn't care about them. Private sector, they can't afford anything. They're not customers. They're so poor. We're not working with this grand irony. These farmers who were so neglected, too poor, too remote, too insignificant. They now become indispensable for all of us. Because if we're facing this, this, this kind of the demographics of the world that over the next several decades, by 2050, we're adding another two, two and a half billion people on the planet, that's two more Chinas or two Indias, we're being told we basically nearly have to double food production in that time to meet these increasing demand. Not only the increasing population, but the increasing prosperity of the population as formerly hungry countries become more prosperous, people move into the middle class, they're eating differently, their diets change. So there's this greater demand. All the farmers in the world need to be as productive as possible and growing as much nutritiously valuable food as possible, including these smallholder farmers. So I hope that's one of the, the takeaways from the book, that, that these farmers are now indispensable to us. They're no longer too poor, too remote, too insignificant. God may who know who they are. We have to know who they are. Because if these farmers succeed, and one acre succeeds, and the other efforts succeed, then so will we all in this, in this, this great challenge that we're facing in, 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 uh, in coming decades. That's a wonderful place to pause, I think, and just open up to the, uh, the audience for some questions. Um, I'd like to just ask you all to um, raise your hand if you'd like to ask a question or make a comment, and uh, a microphone will come to you. I'm going to start in the back. We'll take a couple questions at a time and then um, turn to Stephanie and Roger. And I think we need to be, we need to wrap, we have about 20 minutes and then we'll give people time to buy books if you'd like. Um, okay, her, you in the back and then in the front and then the far back. Okay. Very good. Um, thank you again for taking the time to share your experiences and I think like many people in the room, I've spent some time with some farmers in rural villages in Uganda, and I think that your descriptions are fairly accurate. Could and you just I give wanted us your name and oh, I'm Amber Herman, um, a student at Johns Hopkins University. Um, so one of my questions was recognizing that nearly 50% of the population in many of these countries is the age 30 or younger. How is One Acre Fund helping sort of stabilize and inspire the next generation of farmers? As I'm imagining, a lot of your farmer groups are probably adult-focused farmer groups. Okay, and then we'll move to the front, Mr. Ambassador. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you. My name is Maman Sidiku. I'm the ambassador of Niger Republic in, in, in DC here. I'm with Councillor Arila here. Um, as we're listening to you, I was 
looking back or thinking back when I was a small boy, and, and what you're describing for Kenya is exactly what I went through and grew up with. Mm. Uh, we talk about the lean season, or what we call period de soudure in French, which makes, I think, more, more sense, in the sense that you have to wait until you get to that uh, better season to mm. start eating properly. Uh, and when I was in Rwanda serving as country director for Save Children UK, I was just looking around and saying, okay, this is different from my environment. And I was thinking Kenya is exactly the same thing. And it was telling me is that we're not that different after all. Uh, I would like just to, to talk a little bit about uh, uh, the bundled approach that you mentioned, Stephanie. It's, uh, we think these days that you have to look into yes, resources, including fertilizers, seeds, etc. cetera. Uh, resilience building, education. Perhaps some, some partnership with, with the public sector for, for these private farmers, if you can call them that, mm -hmm. private farmers. And gender. Because uh, when, when I think about uh, where I come from, I can see that during the lean season, I can see lots of men sitting around and women really working. <laughs> so I was, I was wondering, what would be the priority focus? What should be the priority focus? Or should it always be bundled? Because uh, uh, sometimes people tell you, listen, you don't work, you don't produce from nothing. We have to start somewhere. So then comes the dilemma. Where do we start? Mm -hmm. well, that's, that's my question. Thank, Thank you. Mm -hmm. And then uh, the man in the back, check shirt. Hi, uh, Jeff Kaiser from Dahlberg Global Development Advisors. Um, my question, I, I think I read somewhere, and it might have been in the book, I'm forgetting, uh, that, that you guys are about 85% self-sustaining at this point, which is incredibly impressive given what, what you do. Um, and, and I'm just wondering what that last gap is and, and whether or not you think this is a, a model that can be privatized uh, across the continent and, uh, and what that model would look like if it's any different from your own right now. Oh, good. That's Great, really big, good question. Good right. questions uh, about <laughs> sort of next generation of farmers, priorities, and women farmers, and then scaling up. And then we'll do another round of questions after that. So go ahead. Yeah. Do you want me to start? Yeah. What Sorry, yeah. Okay. So I'll, I'll start with the last question on the sustainability, closing the gap, and um, replication of the model. Uh, you're correct. By the end of the year, I think we're sitting at 83% sustainability right now, but by the end of 2012, it will be 85%. And that's... Um, farmer loan revenue is covering 85% of our field operating costs in our three countries of operation, Kenya, Rwanda, and Burundi. So we do charge an interest rate on the loan. Farmers also pay a service fee for the extension services and transportation of inputs. So all of that money, as Roger used the bucket example, is going back into the bucket to, to cover staff costs and then re-lend to farmers. Um, how do we close that 15% gap? Uh, we spent a lot of time thinking about that. Maybe Dahlberg would like to lend some pro bono consulting <laughs> services to us and develop some really cool, mo I don't know. We can talk about that later. Huh. Pro um, bono operative phrase, yeah. right? <laughs> I think between 85 and 95 is going to be pretty straightforward. Between 95 and 100 is where it gets tough. Um, we think we can close the gap, and we've started to, with increasing operational efficiencies. So this usually means two things. Um, our field officers, that army of extension agents slash loan officers, they need to be able to serve more farmers. 
so when, when we first started, a field officer served about 75 farmers. They're now serving about 200 farmers each. So same salary cost, they're serving more farmers. Um, we are looking at whether that um, compromises quality of service, and thus far, it is not. So we think it's possible to probably push it to 250 to 275, but that's about it. That's probably the ceiling. So we get some of our, some of our points through that. Um, another area is increasing transaction size. So we do have between an, uh, 85 to 95% client retention rate. So if our clients are coming back to us, and as Johanna said, in some cases have more available land than what they're taking input loans for, um, why aren't they increasing their transaction size? So we've been doing some surveying on that with our farmers, and it looks like they just need to feel more comfortable with taking a larger loan. Uh, debt is a scary thing. Mm -hmm. um, there are predatory lenders out there in every country where we work. So starting out with a small loan that you're able to repay successfully gives people confidence to take on a bigger loan. And we think you know, a, a bigger loan is actually in the best interest of our clients. So increasing transaction size is one. Um, there are some other less interesting things surrounding you know, the cost of inputs um, as well as well, this one is actually, I think, very interesting, potentially offering new products and services. And we're looking kind of at everything that can get us to 100%. Uh, we do think that the model is scalable, either by our own organization or in partnership with others uh, across Sub-Saharan Africa, potentially in Southeast Asia as well. Um, I would say we're actually agnostic on what exactly that looks like. Um, there are many different kinds of partnerships that work. Uh, you mentioned public sector partnerships. That's something we're very excited about. Uh, we work closely with the Rwandan government, for instance, um, on a couple of their programs right now. Um, we would be interested in microfinance partnerships. That's one option. Microfinance has a pretty big network of clients, but they don't do a lot of agriculture lending. Um, we could potentially partner with private sector seed companies. I think there are actually a lot of options, but the key piece is having that financial sustainability in place to be able to enact a partnership. One quick follow-up um, question. Maybe, uh, maybe, yeah, maybe later we'll yeah. end. Okay, we'll, yeah, you want to do that later? Okay. Yeah, right afterwards. Uh, the ambassador's bundle question? Did you have? Oh, um, I agree with you. The, there's a lot to do and we need to move quickly. So we can't be so dogmatic about how it happens. Um, I think that we should be doing everything that works. Uh, I, I'm here talking about the One Acre Fund model because it's the model I know and I know that it's working. I see it myself every time I do a field visit with, with our farmers. That doesn't mean that there aren't other models out there that are also successful. I think you know, I would point to an organization like Root Capital they do fantastic work with cooperatives. So they work with a completely different clientele of farmers. They don't take a bundled approach. The way that they operate is very different, but it's successful. So I think um, you know, there are lots of models. We need to know about as many of them as possible so that we can take them and upscale them where it's appropriate. Um, and then I think the last question was about youth. Um, I think the youth will get interested in agriculture if they see it's a place they can make money. Mm -hmm. um, people want jobs, employment, a source of income. Uh, agriculture has not looked like that for people for a long time. Um, we, we employ 1,200 people in East Africa now. 
Um, we have tons of applicants under 30 for every open mm. position at our organization. I don't think there's a problem with, you know, I don't think there's an inherent disconnect between youth and agriculture. I think they're completely willing to be interested if it looks like a viable career path for them or, or you know, an opportunity where they can run their own business and, and be successful. Roger. Yeah, and, and, on, and on the youth question, and I'll, I'll kind of also address the gender, and if you have anything to say. Oh, yeah, the, uh, Sorry, but, but one of the boys, uh, Leonita's son, uh, and, and, and he's in high school, and she's struggling all year long to keep him in school because he keeps getting sent back home for more, mm. for more fees and interrupting his, his, his uh, uh, education. He doesn't even like to come home because he knows the sacrifices that his family, his, sister, his, his, his younger sisters and his parents are having to make because they basically took the decision to sell their, 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 their almost their entire harvest at the beginning of the year to sell it to pay his school fees so he, to make sure that he would complete uh, his, his third year of, of high school. Again, that ha for, for them, high school a long range uh, way out of poverty. But when I first talked to Gideon, is his name, I said, well, what are you studying? What would you like to be? He'd like to be uh, a lawyer, he said, because there's a new constitution in Kenya. He says, people in my area, they don't, they don't know the law. Uh, the law should be accessible to everybody. People should know what their rights are. And so I thought, oh, that's very noble of him. And I said, but you know, that like, takes a lot of education, a lot of hunger season sacrificing uh, to go on. And he says, yeah, yeah, yeah I know that. And it, it's kind of bothering him in the back of his mind. Towards the end of the book, as part of his coursework, He's, he's doing, there, there, there's some agriculture classes that he's taken, agriculture, science, kind of extension things that he's taken. And at the end, he says, you know, I'm really interested in those classes. And what I'm seeing is, 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 is what I'm learning could really have a big impact in my, my area. And, and, and I can see it even on my, my mother's farm of the, the impact of extension advice. But we need to take this advice to others. And so, because when you ask all the other children in the book of, of, of you know, do they want to be farmers, it's like, no, what kind of question is that? I see how horrible this labor is for my, you know, for my mother. It's, it's backbreaking. And at, in the preface of the book, I try to dispel the notions that if anybody has a romantic notion of, of, of rural Africa and smallholder farmers, to immediately dispel that because it's a nightmarish existence of a hunger season, a backbreaking labor of malnourished children, they see that and it's like, no, I'd like to be a nurse, I'd like to be a teacher, I'd like to be something else. But as Stephanie said, as they see farming become more successful, as surpluses, as, as, as income generating things, that then is an indication, oh, wait a minute, maybe life doesn't have to be so hard, I can actually advance, I can, I can have improvements in my life um, through farming. So I think that's an interesting dynamic that goes on that as, it, it's one of kind of the byproducts of agriculture development. It's not only you know, increased production, increased nutritional value of the food, but it's also kind of this, 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 this message that goes out to the youth that there's, 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 there's movement here, there's, there's prospects here. And on the gender question, so yeah, the, 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 the majority, at least in Western Kenya, of the farmers doing, a small, doing, do, doing the, the subsistence, smallholder farming uh, of the staple crops are, are women. So of the four farmers, three are, three are women, so I wanted to kind of reflect that. Uh, dynamic, uh, it was really profound to learn from them that the women are feeling, they're fa they feel they're failing on two fronts. They're failing as farmers because they're not growing enough food to feed their families throughout the year. I'm getting up every morning to grow food 
but I'm part of this oxymoron of a hungry farmer. So I'm failing on the hunger front, and I'm also failing as a mother because my children are malnourished. And so what I, what I realized, the misery that Leonita talked about, the, the, the most profound and the deepest misery of these farmers is to be a mother unable to silence the crying of a hungry, of a hungry child. And so, so the, the gender aspect of this and then the empowerment of it that the men would be out maybe with a cash crop or they're on some other, if they have some other kind of occupation, they're, 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 they're traders or, or maybe, maybe they're a shopkeeper, they're working at the M-Pesa, the, 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 the phone banking uh, system. So they're, they're, they're doing something else. But what's fascinating is that as the staple crop, as this maize crop, which was, that's a subsistence crop. You're not even growing enough to feed the family. All of a sudden as that becomes a surplus crop and that's bringing income into the family, then the men start getting interested in that. And they start wondering about the decisions that the, that, that, that the wives are making. And Sapor in particular, there's a conversation that she's having with her husband and says, oh, now you're interested in this. And I said, is that good? And she says, it's much better for the harmony of the family because we need to be talking about these things as opposed to me having to make the decision of what we're planning and, and being second-guessed, so, but th that we're discussing this you know, together and that we both have to be involved in these issues. So just through this agriculture development, you see these changing dynamics and this empowerment of the women in their families, but then also the voice that they have in society because other people are looking and saying, what are these people doing and what these women, how are they so, so successful all of a sudden? So it's kind of a powerfully uplifting on a number of fronts. Great. Well, let's take one more round. Let's see, uh, Paul and then over here and then woman in the middle who's had your hand up. And we have to give them the update on Sephora. We haven't done that we'll, yet, We'll right? do that or, at the okay, end. Okay, good, okay. We'll say that I don't want us to forget. Yes, I wrote it down, do so we teased everybody. <laughs> That's true, you're right. We didn't close off the story. Uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Rosemary Seguero. I'm the president of Hope for Tomorrow. I'm based here in Washington, D.C. We focus on conflicts and resolution and also violence. And uh, I'm just happy for your presentation. I come from Kenya, and not only Kenya, from Western Kenya. Hooray! That's where I come from. <laughs> That's where I was born and raised as a, a woman and I've been on the land as you talk. So what you are saying, I agree somehow and uh, disagree somehow because what you are trying to talk is uh, as if you are, I don't know if it's a new invention or innovation of what you are coming up with and looking at my organization, we are now focusing on rural agriculture, working with women, and the young people in the rural areas of Kakamega. That's where I come from. How do you, uh, how can you, what is, what is it better that you are doing more than Ministry of Agriculture and the existing cooperatives and the women who grew up on the farm like me who are maybe, I can't say they are poor because I've stayed on the farm. My mother is 78 but still growing on the farm. What are you doing better and uh, what are you not doing better? And how can we collaborate as an organization based here in Washington, D.C., doing what you are doing? We have other organizations. I know many of them here in America that are doing the same thing. How can we talk the same language or collaborate to do something better than what you are, not than what you are doing, something better or reach the women in the rural areas? Because my, my innovation I with the new women, what I'm doing, so how can we do better or how can we collaborate? Because what you are doing is what I'm doing is what another organization is doing and we are the same. Is it research or is it 
what is it that you are doing better than what we can do? Thank Great, you. thank you. That very passionate plea for coordination and organization. Let's take the next question. Maybe and following next one, on we'll that, go to you Paul, for an Paul Miller Catholic Relief Services, thank you so much for shining a spotlight on, on the families in, in the book, and thanks to One Acre. Um, your book was reviewed by Dr. Paul Collier, mm -hmm. um, and this issue of we should care, and now the world is caring about smallholder farmers, uh, Dr. Collier has a different view, and he says that, frankly, um, we're not going to solve the world's food security problems. Um, it's almost a sideshow to focus on the smallholders. Um, we at CRS have a different view. I have a different view personally. He says, no, we have to focus on the Brazilian model. My friends in the Brazilian landless movement would have a different view. Yes. But, <laughs> but let's just say the American, the Brazilian model is big farms, industrialized, um, inorganic uh, fertilizer, and, and frankly, let's not be rom romantic about, about farmers. Um, so again, I, I, I think I might share an opinion with you, but I'd like to hear your response mm. to that. Billions of dollars, the donor world has finally woken up uh, to agriculture after years of absence, the private sector. Absolutely. And they said they're going to invest. At the same time, land is also a commodity. So how do you respond to Dr. Collier? Mm. And then uh, over to the woman in the red dress. And this will be our last question. Thank you. Um, John Ketchmark, African Development Foundation. I just wanted to know, I think you're on the verge of touching on this exit strategy. So long-term sustainability, passing the project over to the folks who are investing in it at the local level. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to ask you to be a little bit brief in your comments so we can come back and close out our conversation about Zipporah. Yeah, so um, again, I'll start with the last question on exit strategy. Just briefly, we don't have an exit strategy. Maybe that sounds insane in a place like Washington, D.C., where there are lots of things called projects that run for three years or five years. You know, they get donor funding for a certain period of time. You need to close out, hand it over to your local partners, and move on. Uh, One Acre Fund is a nonprofit, but we operate like a business. Our customers are small farmers. If our customers want the service that we're providing, they'll come back to us and they'll keep taking loans. If they don't want that service anymore, they'll go elsewhere. If there's another organization offering what we're offering at a better price or on terms that they like better, they're free to go there. So I think for us, Exit strategy, it's not something that we think about a lot. We think about financial sustainability, that's really important. We think about scaling up, but we're not planning to exit because I, I, it's like saying to Coca-Cola, when are you planning to exit Africa? They're not, you know, as long as they can sell Coke, they'll be there. So for us, as long as we can provide something, a product or a service to farmers that is income generating for them, that they're willing to pay for, we'll be there. And the majority of your staff is local, right? Oh, yeah, and I guess I should clarify. Um, of our 1,200 staff in East Africa, 95% of them are local, and local to the regions and communities where they're working. So I'd say in large part we are local organization right now. Yeah. Do you want to answer her question as well about coordination, uh, coordination, and, coordination and working coordination. together? I think, again, I'll just draw the private sector parallel. No one ever goes to Coca-Cola and says, why aren't you collaborating with Pepsi? They're competitors. And not to suggest that you and I are competitors, we're not, but there is a big market out there, right? There are a lot of farmers. One Acre Fund is growing quickly, but frankly, we can't grow fast enough to address the demand. So you, know, you spoke about those women in Kakamega. I think we serve 14,000 farmers in Kakamega, but there are thousands of farmers that we're not reaching. So maybe your organization is out there working with some of those thousands of farmers, and that's great. Um, as Roger says, you know, we're going to have a lot more people in the world in 2050. We have to increase global food production by 70%. 
everyone who can be working on these issues should be doing it. Yes, we should be talking to each other and sharing information, but I don't think we have to become consolidated necessarily. We don't all have to become the same organization. And Roger, large, large farms, small farms, both? Yeah, I, mean, I, 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 think, I think both. And as, as I was reading the review, it was kind of, okay, this is nice. He has some things to say about the book. And then it's all of a sudden like, oh, but here's my thinking. And here's my Brazilian model. And my wife then, she read it and says, what's she talking about Brazil for? It's a book on Africa. I said, no, he's got to get his own, his, his own uh, <laughs> views in here. Um, and, and so that's fine. So I read it. I said, oh, that's an interesting uh, counterpoint. But I think, yeah, that, that if you're looking at, the, at, at, at Africa and where Africa is, you know, is, is now, um, you kind of have to start somewhere. And there, there's all these smallholder farmers, they're hungry farmers, they have the hunger season, so kind of what is the solution to them? So to, to have them be as productive, as nutritious as possible to improve their lives. And in the question that I often get, I think this is a fascinating question, I know, and I've talked to Andrew and, and, and Stephanie about this, that, okay, so how does this at all play out? Because the farmers, they see, here's what, if I can do this on a half an acre, I'd do one acre, right? I'd do two acres or three acres. If they can kind of rent other land, they have a, they have a term, super farmer. So anybody with two, two acres or more, mm -hmm. what's your ambition? Oh, I want to be a super farmer. They have two acres. And so it, it's kind of, you, you kind of see the co consolidation or the growth on their end. They would, they're, they're, in the, they're in the search to, to rent more land. Uh, can I afford that with the, with, with, with the credit? And so they're starting to, to figure out kind of the, the, the financial ramifications of all this and how they could possibly um, uh, do that, but I think in in a, in a place like you know Kenya, you do you also have the the, the bigger farms uh, that would be more up in up in the highlands. Uh, you know Ethiopia, I, I remember they have they have you know some really big farmers uh, in Ethiopia, in the highland areas, and the government had always been talking about uh, um, because of the roots that they that, that 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 they come from 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 Marxist roots or or, or Trotskyite roots or something that that was all kind of all hail the smallholder farmers. And, and, and the small business people, but at some stage, somebody, it was either the, the, the ag minister or the, or the, or the permanent secretary, some, he came out and said, actually, we need both. And we need, we need the bigger farmers to, to, for, for kind of the scale of production, but the smallholder farmers for the importance of the community and being able to feed their families and the communities and their neighbors, that that, that, that has to be taken care of and that's something that we need to start with. So I guess I would kind of, you know, go back to, to kind of the advice of Mother Teresa that well, it's such a big problem, where do you start? And she says, you, you start with what's in front of you. And so here's the smallholder farmers, they're hungry farmers, they're in the hunger season, their kids are malnourished, they're not going back, they're not, they're not going to school, so what do we do about, what do we do with them? And so then these activities there, and then we'll see what that, what, what, what that leads to in terms of the, of the transformation. But just the way the societies are structured and things, I don't think you would have kind of the huge consolidations in those um, in those in those areas, so. And I think uh, um, I, I, I think we've talked a lot about the smallholder today, and I want to I want us to not talk at all about policy because I want us to all be thinking much more about the people who are actually really supposed to be talking about um, health has been remarkably successful in terms of getting people thinking about global health. There have been a lot of study guides, a lot of conversation. There's not been nearly the kind of conversation about farmers that, that we need to put us on an equal footing. You are de designing a study guide for the book, right? Or uh, one campaign is maybe one, cam one campaign, we've just come out with a uh, faith study, faith guide, study guide for okay. churches and their network of congregations that are, that are kind of part of the one 
network uh, that's now available on one.org and in faith at one. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's for five Sundays for the churches that would want to do, congregations that would want to do that, or synagogues or or whatever denomination uh, and faith. Uh, Or if they just want to do one day, that's there too. So there's excerpts from the book, the spirituality of the book, then becomes becomes kind of lessons for those Sundays. Uh, There's Mm -hmm. video clips, because we're making a documentary uh, of the the book at thelasthungerseason.com. There's there's some trailers uh, that are there that you can see and see the farmers. Uh, and uh, yeah, and then hopefully to also develop a, a study guide, uh, maybe at three levels. So one for faith organizations, uh, one for universities and classes that would like to study this and use the book, but then also a general one for like, for like book clubs for and like people to people. be talking about. For normal people, for normal right. People, for regular old people. Uh, that, that, that to kind of just generate, and Joanna, you're absolutely right, to generate this, this, yep. this discussion and this, this momentum of people talking about this and that this is, that this is really, really vital and really important. And, and these are these real people. people. And they're real, real people. people. And we've never paid attention to them yeah. before, but when you think about it, they're really crucial for... Uh, uh, for, the, for the future of, of all of us. Well, let's close just with your, um, with sort of the end of the story about Zipporah and where she was at the end of the book, and then uh, we'll disperse after that. So please share with us. I will take to the end of the book, and Stephanie's actually seen her since, so uh, she can fill us in. So my last visit uh, with the farmers is at, is at uh, Christmas time. So the, so the harvest was already in. The last time I was with uh, Zipporah would have been uh, end of October or, or, or something early November, and she was, she was just, everything was, the maize was being dried, and she was starting to put it into bags. So how big is your harvest? We can't really tell yet, but we think it's like really big. And as I said, the year before, a quarter of an acre, two bags of maize. With becoming a one acre member, she says, I can do an acre. So she plants an acre, and she follows everything. Her corn is looking great. We're watching it grow throughout the year. And so at the end of the year, what was your, what was your harvest? 20 bags. It was miraculous. It was such an increase in wealth. From two bags to 20, a tenfold increase in her harvest. Yes, her land, she, she, she had planted more, but, but 20 bags all of a sudden. And then, so then she comes out, her and her husband, and they came out with a piece of paper. And what they had drawn on that was a blueprint for their new house. And they were, they were living, they were the poorest people. They were living in this, 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 this smallest mud, mud, mud and sticks house with a thatched roof that leaked. And here was this new house that they were planning to build. They would make their own bricks. Uh, in, in the blueprint, there was a little thing, a little room that was like a bathroom. It, not that it would have running water. There would be a cistern outside and then connected with a hose. But the importance of that, that you would actually have like kind of that kind of running water in the house just for hygiene and for washing hands. There was, a, there was one room that was called the study room. So for the kids to go, and in the kitchen was like outside and wasn't part of that. So there's not like smoke all over the place. Uh, I think. And so I figured, wow, look at this. And then metal roofs. And, and they had it all broken down. How much this is all going to cost? How much, how, much the metal, how much metal sheets do I have to cover the roof and the square footage that we're planning? And they had that all planned. And yeah, with our 20 bags, we can feed ourselves throughout the year and build a house and start a poultry business and maybe buy another cow and help David's nutrition. And all of a sudden, his, 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 his belly was flattening, his cough was disappearing. So it was all these things, this and was really coming into their lives, and then Stephanie visits them, and what'd you yeah. see? So uh, I went to see Zipporah and her family in August, and lo and behold, the blueprint has, has uh, turned into an almost complete house. In fact, I'm headed to Kenya tomorrow night, and I fully expect that when I get to Western Kenya and go out to see her, the house will be complete. It was about, 
two brick rows shy of the roof. They were making plans for how many sheets of tin they would need to buy to cover it. And indeed, it is a beautiful house. Um, I mean, incredibly well built. It's quite large. I think it has six rooms in total. And um, they were just incredibly proud to be showing me this house and say, look, this is our old house. You know, as soon as this new house is complete, we're knocking that old thing down. Um, as if to erase that they had ever had that other house. And Zabora's husband, he is, when he has, um, when he has the capital for it, he's a livestock trader. And so he was telling me about plans he was making for doing some, uh, some important trades later in the year. December is a big time of year for purchasing cows for the holidays and things. So he had some plans for that, that time. And, um, and these were all contingent on what their 2012 harvest would be. And they were about to harvest when I was visiting them. And they said, we think it will be more than 20 bags this year. So it's a wonderful place to end. Thank you both yeah. so much for sharing Thank your time. You. And thanks for joining us today. Thanks for coming. It's a great question. The Collier Review is really good. Yeah. Um, I mean, Gordon Conway has done some really excellent research showing that smallholder farmers can be just as productive, if not more productive in some cases, than a large scale farm. And Listen, I'm going to see yeah. you tomorrow, so I don't want to keep yeah. you away from everybody. I really, thanks I for introducing. And yeah, tomorrow, looking so. forward to it. Hi. Thank you. Is One Acre based in Chicago? No. Um, no. The founder of One Acre Fund went to business school in Chicago, so we have good network in Chicago. We have a Chicago chapter of people who support our work, and they're gracious enough to put on a big fundraiser for us once a year. So if you're interested in getting involved with that chapter, it's a really great group of people. Um, that is a great question. Um, if you, yeah. Oh my gosh, sorry, we've been having, been having some recurrent problems with that content page. You can just email me and I can put you in touch with the head of the Chicago chapter. Okay. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. I was just in Kenya three weeks ago. Oh, you were? I was hearing about the corn virus. Oh, yeah, MLND. So yeah. I went to a farm <laughs> where they had little corn plants and flourishing cassava plants. Yeah, yeah. So I wonder if you guys are moving people towards cassava. Um, well, we're actually doing everything we can to try and combat this disease. So we're working on prevention. Um, we're working on... Um, on identification for swift uproot and burning, and then we're working on alternative crops, of which cassava will be one of those. The yeah. project that I went to visit, because I support a couple of projects there. I live in Chicago, but I taught things here. Okay. These guys found that the market was saturated for cassava. Yeah. They grind the chips and sell them. They're oh, interesting. Flour, and then yeah. they're baking the flour into stuff. That People they can sell. eat cassava. So, I mean, it's, it's yeah, if you're not going to get a maize harvest next year, a cassava harvest is. It's something. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, you know, we don't do seed development ourselves, so we're, we are honestly reliant on others for that. There are some good bean varieties sitting in the National Research Institute in Kenya. Um, if you know anything about how to convince them to release those varieties to seed companies, uh, no. <laughs> no. I think, yeah. I work with John and IRP. Oh, okay. And I actually reviewed the book. Oh my gosh. He would love. I will give this to him. Thank you. I don't know. I tweeted about it, so I don't know if you guys saw it. You know what? Someone else does that with. I don't see everything, but thank you for bringing it to my attention. And say hi to John for me. I was disappointed. Yeah, he had to run to yeah. Yeah, I hope you're enjoying the work at IRP. I am. Great. I will. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for your yeah, sustainability yeah, question. Yeah, it's yeah, nice yeah. to meet you. So, uh, you, you know Dahlberg? Or I do, okay. yes. I know Edwin well, uh, Globetrotter that he is. And um, recently you guys were doing that um, that research study with, um, was it City in partnership with City? City? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That report just came out. Did you see? It's, no. Yeah. It's very, very good. Yeah, uh, I thought the report was great. So my two follow-ups for you: what is your, what does the interest rate equate to? Um, it's a little bit different by country, just because of uh, you know uh, what people's price sensitivities are. It's it's about fifteen percent in Kenya right now. It's more like eleven percent in Rwanda. Yeah, um, yeah, it's pretty competitive. And how many how many farmers do you find have any access to formal and informal credit before? That's a great question, and again, it differs by country. So Burundi zero, yeah. um, Rwanda very very low. Yeah. Um, microfinance just hasn't, uh, for various reasons, hasn't penetrated into yeah. the rural areas. Kenya. It's a different story. It's a more developed market. So absolutely, um, some of our clients have loans with KWFT at the same time that they have loans with us. Um, but we haven't done sort of extensive surveying in Kenya on that, so I don't want to attach a figure to it. But um, And are you, and you mentioned efficiency coming and scaling up the efficiency of the yeah. Do you, what's the what's their plot? Do they have a, any sort of hardware or software or technology? Are they using any sort of like, what we, we talked to, I'm working on a project with KFW right now in, in Nigeria, doing small their finance. Uh -huh. And one of the one of the sort of integrated service providers we're looking at. Oh, I'm so sorry.